Uh, hey, it's great, great to be here. Um, uh, I was told this morning um, by somebody, Kobedi, who um, said, uh, Umfundis, that was such a great sermon, please don't preach it again. <laughs> so, so I, uh, I'm not sure if your media team is expecting me to preach it again, but uh, I won't, by, by popular request. Um, uh, but it has been a day of uh, celebrating God's hand upon our young ministers and um, us recognizing God's gifting of those men and setting aside those pastors for ministry. That's what's happened today, uh, this morning, and again, some part of that this evening. And uh, so... I want to look at another passage just about ministry and and what pastoral ministry really is all about because it sometimes uh, it doesn't look like that uh, when you look around. So I'm going to look at not uh, 2 Corinthians 4, but 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, and uh, I want to read the first um, seven verses. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, uh, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Otherwise, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, will you um, speak your word to us by the power of your Holy Spirit? Um, make, uh, make a change in all our hearts um, that affects us from now into eternity. Uh, will you do that, we pray in Jesus' great name. Amen. So this little section, obviously, uh, about uh, got a lot to do with... Um, God's word uh, to the pastors of the churches. And uh, it's important to point out because some people get caught up in what the different words, categories mean. This, this little passage is not so much about the categories of Christian leadership, but about the character of Christian leadership. And the strength of all of the teachings in all of the scriptures that pertain to pastoral ministry uh, relates 90% to character. Uh, 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 rather than categories or some sort of uh, hierarchy. And when you read these verses, I mean, you must immediately think this is so contrary to the way leadership is shown in the world and in the world's systems of leadership. Uh, this leadership expectation in the church is just so contrary to that. And, and actually, as our world moves further and further away from biblical and scriptural principles for living, um, 
pastoral leadership will, should be seen in more and more of a contrast to the way the world leads. I want us to learn five things from Peter's letter. Um, uh, just five brief points I want to bring out from this, this paragraph. Five things that uh, Peter is teaching uh, the pastors and the elders of the church. First of all, uh, don't miss, firstly, Peter's example. Peter's example, before he even starts giving the teaching, is quite uh, profound. He says there, I exhort or I appeal to the elders or the pastors among you. Um, and look at the language he uses to describe himself. Three things there in verse 1. He describes himself uh, as a fellow elder. So he doesn't, he's immediately putting himself in the same category as all the other pastors. This is the apostle Peter, one of the twelve one who walked with Jesus and was discipled by Jesus personally for three years. He doesn't say anything about his great status there. He doesn't say, I appeal to you as the first pope or, or I appeal to you as the great apostle. He doesn't say any of those things. He says, I appeal, to you, I appeal to you pastors as a fellow pastor, as a fellow pastor. There's a picture of Peter's humility here. I'm a fellow worker in Christ's church, a witness of Christ's sufferings. That's interesting. It could refer to the fact that he actually saw Jesus suffer, which he did. But often the first apostles called themselves witnesses of Christ's sufferings as they suffered, as they suffered for the gospel. They bore witness. Uh, Paul talks about filling up in his own body the sufferings of Christ because we know that we're part of his body and our suffering is his suffering. Uh, our persecution is his persecution. So he could be talking about that. But yes, yes, he's... His credibility, he's a witness of Christ's sufferings, both actual witness visibly, but also testifying to it by his life in suffering for Jesus. And even going into glory, he says there, a partaker, or, or it could be translated as somebody who will share in the glory that's going to be revealed. Again, and a third example, just in his introducing of himself, of his humility, of how he looks at himself as one of us, Fellow believer. We're not going to get to heaven and go, oh, look, there's the Apostle Peter, you know, right up there with Bishop Martin, and, you know, and here we are. We're not going to see that. Peter, the Apostle, sees himself as a partaker, one who's going to share alongside us with the glory that is going to be revealed in the last day. All of these are signs of the humility of the Apostle Peter. There's no um, glorification of human leadership in the church. So Peter's example, firstly, and look secondly at Peter's instruction. Peter's instruction to the pastors. He says there in verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. There's two very important words there. Two very important words, shepherd and oversight. Shepherd, which um, means to care, and it's a common word, Old Testament and New Testament, of leaders. And I think would have particular meaning for Peter because um, Peter failed Jesus at that critical time. Remember, just before Jesus' crucifixion and denied him three times. And Jesus restored him in John 21 three times, saying to him, feed my sheep, uh, feed my lambs, feed my sheep, shepherd my flock, in other words. So this word, this, uh, word on pastoral ministry had, would have deep meaning for Peter because he's been commissioned to do something that he failed to do. Uh, and that, of course, is what Jesus does for all of us in ministry. He commissions failures for his service and even for leadership in the church. Um, I don't think many of us in pastoral ministry would have CVs that the corporate world would get excited about. But these are the people Jesus calls into ministry. 
shepherd the flock, care for the flock. That's what Jesus himself does when he cares for and he shepherds broken people and calls them into ministry. And what does the good shepherd do to shepherd the flock? Ironically, he doesn't do what some apostles do and make the flock eat grass. <laughs> we, we feed them the word of God, don't we? Man does not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Shepherd the flock means to find good pasture for the sheep. And the pasture that the, feed, that the sheep feed on is the word of God. And that is the central driving responsibility of a pastor. We spoke about that this morning, to preach that Jesus is Lord. All the other things we do in pastoral ministry, of which there are many, are peripheral to that central task. And by the way, it is that central task that we are always tempted to sideline because it doesn't get as much appreciation or attention, especially from our unbelieving friends and family. So we have to say, well, you know, I'm, I'm in an NGO, you know. <laughs> Something important. We shepherd, and how do we shepherd? We feed them the word of God. And exercising oversight, um, which means leadership. It does mean exercising leadership. You do take leadership, but, but it is a servant leadership, as you will see. And leadership is important. Pastors must take responsibility to lead the church, um, to exercise that oversight. It does involve sharpening your skills in knowing how to lead God's people. It's important. And, and a, a lot of secular leadership manuals aren't going to help us here. You need someone to mentor us here in ways that um, we can learn from God's word how to lead better. That's part of the bishop's role is to help that happen. So, um, oh, Um, um, Kate, why don't you bring me my shopping bag over there, please? The, the fancy one that's got Woolworths written on it. Um, where are our three pastors? Can the presiding bishop give you a gift, seeing as I'm talking about leadership? I've got, I've got some cheese. And... Um, and uh, Reggie, I haven't even inscribed these yet for you. Um, this isn't the book I wrote, but it's the book I wish I had written. <laughs> They're hot off the press. Uh, uh, Reggie, come up here. I want you to learn how to lead the flock of God um, by adding this book to your reading list. <laughs> Smile for the camera. Where's Gareth? Jeez, you know. Did you tell him it wasn't the same sermon? <laughs> Rafa. Take two books. <laughs> and you can give it to your friend, Mercy Bukuk. So as the bishop was saying, we need to learn how to lead the flock. <laughs> Exercising oversight. Leadership is important. And learning the principles of leadership from God's word are very important. But do notice this as well from this verse. You see what Peter says there? Um, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. That is a very important uh, phrase that you must not miss. The flock of God. It is not the flock of Glen. That's very important. 
because far too many pastors think the flock is their flock. It's not their flock. It's God's flock. And we are temporary stewards of someone else's property. Do you know the last time I was in Joburg, which feels like years ago, um, I, I came here and um, one of the members of the church lent me his car to use while I was around Joburg because he says, you know, it's difficult to get around. Where I live in, well, all my closer friends call it Ibai, but uh, it's Kleberge. You have to pronounce it now to get in. And, um, you know, in, in Koberga, Ibai, you can get across the whole city in 15 minutes. You know, I can't get across Midrand in 15 minutes. So, anyway, this guy uh, in the church lent me his car to use while I was in Joburg. Now, yeah, you know, I'm from the Eastern Cape. You know, we think a polo is a fancy car. And... Uh, Anyway, I knew I was in trouble with this car because it didn't have a key. And I'd never driven a car that didn't have a key, you know. I thought only carjackers knew how to drive cars <laughs> without a key. And this car was so fancy and I was so scared. And I thought, whew, I've got to be so careful driving this thing around Joburg. And oh, I was like, everybody, every time someone came near me, I'd roll down the window and say, back off, get away, back, don't scratch this thing, don't. It was terrible enough. I didn't know where, I was too scared to go to certain places in Joburg. I couldn't go and visit Penduka and Hillbrow because the car was just too fancy to go there. And, uh, and I, I looked after it so carefully, made sure everything was fine and gave it back, but I was sweating because I just didn't want to, you know, a scratch on that car would cost me my house, you know. <laughs> and I was thinking about that car and I was thinking how careful I was with that car because it wasn't my property. How careful am I as a pastor with God's flock? Because they are not my property. And I have to give account when I stand before the chief shepherd. We, bear, we must bear that in mind. Too many want the pastor's role for the, for the status, not the responsibility. And we should take this God-given stewardship seriously when we shepherd God's flock. It is a fearful responsibility because it's God's flock and not ours. Look thirdly at Peter's motivation here as he goes on in verse 2 and you see uh, three sets of instructions, a negative and a positive, a negative and a positive and a negative and a positive. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, verse 2 goes on to say, not under compulsion but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge but being examples to the flock. Three negatives, three positives. Um, uh, and all very specific instructions that should be taken seriously, not a, under compulsion. Why does he say that? Do some people go into ministry because they feel compelled? Yeah, maybe in some cultural circles, you know, your father was a minister, your grandfather was a minister, now you must be a minister. But I want to be a racing driver, you know, but no, you must be a minister. So you, there is that kind of compulsion. But also in those days, because of persecution, the Roman Empire would get rid of the leaders first because that would scatter the flock. And so it wasn't something you were really keen on doing because you could lose your head, literally. And so, so people uh, were reluctant to be leaders. Peter says, well, then don't be. You know, if, if you don't want to serve in the Lord's church as a pastor, then don't. Uh, you must be willing to do it, come what may, even if the emperor cuts off your head. Um, uh, 
uh, uh, and certainly not for shameful gain, secondly, but doing it eagerly. And again, the shameful gain was, was something I mentioned it this morning. A shameful gain is, is something always as a temptation because you can get a following and then you can get money and you can do it. You can set up a little tent church around the corner and make money. You can do that if you've got the skills and you've got the abilities. And that's what they were doing in the first century. Um, uh, it was a popular thing because there was no TV. People went to halls to hear preachers speak, or, or s- not necessarily Christian preachers, but um, philosophers and so on would speak. And if they were really impressive, they'd get a following and a fan following, and people would come and pay to come and hear them speak. Um, and preachers were doing the same and thinking, I can make money out of this. Don't do this for shameful gain. And you can still do this today. You can still do things for shameful gain. And there's scandal after scandal of people who do things for shameful gain uh, in the church and manipulate people out of money. We don't have to tell you. The news uh, uh, media will tell you. Just they're constantly there. And because people are easily manipulated um, by um, charlatans who, who who get a following, but they want shameful gain, they want money. And then thirdly, not domineering, but being examples to the flock. Again, another common temptation is to abuse power and to take that power and make, uh, make it something that you use to manipulate people, to get, it, to get them to do what you want. Um, I was in Uganda last year, and my friend is the Archbishop of Uganda, and he's a wonderful, humble man, Stephen Kazimba. And... Um, and and I, but the, the, the structure there is, is full of temptation because of the, the adulation of bishops uh, in Anglican systems, and something that him and I spoke about, actually. But he very kindly, here's another story about a car. What's with all the cars tonight? He let me, he, he, he made his uh, car, he, he placed his car at my disposal with his chauffeur, with his driver, and his car, which was fancy car. You know, a big fancy 4 by 4 It had the flags on it, the number plate, you know, His Grace or whatever it was, Archbishop. And, um, and, and I remember getting into the car, and I sat in the front with the driver, and the driver looks at me and goes, Yo, what are you doing here? <laughs> Get in the back. You must sit in the back. You're the Archbishop. You must sit in the back. So I'm sitting in the back of the car. People are driving. The cops pull us over, not for a bribe, but so that the Archbishop can give the blessing. You know what I mean? That's how it was. And um, we're driving around Kampala, and people are waving and getting out the way. And I was thinking to myself as we were sitting in the car, and everybody was just, you know, the seas were parting in front of us. (laughs) And I remember thinking to myself, yo, this is dangerous. This is very dangerous because if you if you like this, oh, you can do great damage. Uh, we must tread carefully when uh, that kind of hero worship is given to leaders in the church. That is a very dangerous thing. Um, so we shouldn't pursue pastoral ministry as a means to easy income. We shouldn't pursue it as a way of gaining status. And we shouldn't pursue it as a way of gaining cash or money. Um, as a matter of fact, genuine pastoral ministry is very hard. Um, there will always be financial hardship. There will always be 
great difficulties that you'd have to grapple with and deep issues of spiritual conflict. You know, people sometimes say to me, oh, yeah, yeah, you're so lucky you're a pastor, you know, not like us, we have to live in the real world, you know. Is that really true? Is that really true? And sometimes when I've got irritated with people out there, I said, okay, next time you come with me when I go visit a family whose father's just been murdered. Come with me then. Or you come with me when I go see a woman who's just been raped. Come with me then. See if I'm escaping the real world. Pastoral ministry actually is seeing the world as it really is. And the reality and the harshness and the hardship and the sadness of sin and the damage that it does. Um, yeah, well, we're not escaping the real world. You can do that on TikTok, but not in the church. Look fourthly at Peter's promise. Here's the promise to the pastors who do their task diligently. And when the chief chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. It will never fade away. The chief shepherds, any time Jesus is called the chief shepherd in the New Testament, but it fits the context. We are under shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd. We're called to shepherd the flock that belongs to the chief shepherd. When he appears, what happens? We will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. Now that word unfading uh, actually refers to a specific crown in the first century uh, which everybody knew about because of the Olympic Games. And in those days in the Olympic Games, they didn't give you a gold medal if you won. Um, You got a, a wreath on your head which was normally made from ivy or some kind of plant. Um, and normally this particular type of ivy would last for quite a while, and you'd have this kind of green crown on your head. And um, so you'd wear these branches, basically, a a tree on your head if you won the race or whatever. But, you know, by the time you won at the Olympic Games and you got the green bush on your head, um, you know, when you get home after traveling by ship for three months to go and show all your family your crown, It was just a bunch of dead leaves by then. Look, I won, I promise. I didn't just find this in the garden, you know. And also, even that great crown, you know, you win the Olympics, you know, you 100 meters or whatever, you'll eventually get forgotten, you know. I mean, can you imagine trying to keep wearing that fading bush on your head, you know, week after week, month after month, year after year, you know. I mean, you could, like... Years later, some kid goes, Mommy, what's that man doing walking around with that dried-up bush on his head? Oh, that's John Smith. He won the Olympics uh, high jump in 1967, but he still wears the thing. Even those great achievements fade. Whatever great status or achievement you have, it's soon forgotten. People usually forgotten. By the way, do youth ministry, you know, and then say to kids, do you know who, like, Che Guevara is or Margaret Thatcher? And they go like, who? Who? You know, suddenly the heroes quickly fade. People are quickly forgotten, and achievements are quickly forgotten. But not what is done for the kingdom. Isn't that a great thing about pastoral ministry? Everything you do matters for eternity. Matters for eternity. Now, don't think again that when you get to heaven, you're going to get the archbishop's car with the flags on it. That's not the crown of glory. It can't be the crown of glory because that's all about selfishness. It's the complete opposite of what, of what heaven values. 
What is it that heaven treasures? Do you know, do you know what heaven treasures? Do you know what heaven treasures? I mean, it, it can't be gold because the streets are made of gold. So that can't be very valuable. Can you imagine gold streets with potholes? Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> Isn't that what a goalie really means, I suppose? I don't know. But it can't be those things. It can't be those kind of achievements. Paul says to the Philippians, he says to the Philippians, you are my joy and my crown. See, what is it that heaven treasures? It's got to be people. It's got to be people. So how do we collect treasure for heaven? We collect people. We call people to to, to come to Christ. And they are the crown of glory when we get to heaven. And that is the crown of glory that we lay at Jesus' feet. Because they've come because of Jesus. And we are merely the under-shepherds that have done the task under him. That's the crown of glory that we delight in. So, we should be about people. We should be about finding people, calling them to Christ, and seeing them come into his kingdom. The crown is people. Lastly, here's a principle that Peter leaves us. Fifthly, a final instruction to all of us, a principle for living and serving one another as God's people. Likewise, verse 5 you are younger, be subject to the elders. There's an expectation here of some level of respect. And of course, in our day and age, this is a big issue. And there's a a, a, a defiance uh, mood in our world. You know, No one must tell me what to do. Um, and it all goes back to Adam and Eve and shaking our fist at God and saying, don't tell me what to do. And uh, it's why the pastor must lead with humility and integrity so that he has the respect uh, to give the instructions for people to submit to. Because if that pastor is a bully, then you wouldn't submit to him. But if he is humble and godly, then you'll respect him enough to submit to him. And by the way, it's not just young people. He says, he goes on to say, clothe yourselves all of you, verse 5. This is not just young people, all of you. This is the way a church should be noticed. This is the way a family of believers should look. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Here's the principle. Here is one of the great distinctives of God's people. That there is, a, there is a, an other person's centeredness. And it is so contrary to the way of the world. And I've seen this so many times when people have visited our church. Unbelievers will come and they'll say, there's something different about the people here. There's something different about the people. You know? There's a genuineness. They actually want to know who you are, where you're from. Um, you know? They want to know those things. Uh, I'll tell you a story about that. Have we got time? Can I tell you another story? Yeah? So um, one of our largest churches in KZN uh, is, in, uh, is in Pinetown. And uh, we put our first Zulu minister in a church that had 800 umlungus in it, you know. And, uh, and people were nervous. And uh, I don't know, you know, like saying, are you, Bishop, are you sure you're right? Remember what Shaka Zulu did to us, you know. <laughs> and uh, and <laughs> I said, no, he's a gospel man. We must put him in, in there. And so we put good enough in there. And, um, and people stayed because he loved them and he preached the gospel. And and I realized everything was going to be fine when I went there the one day to help him with a new members service. 
And this white man about my age came up to me. And he said, hi, I'm New Year. And I said, oh, welcome. I'm New Year myself. And I said to him, tell me how you got to this church. Why did you start coming to this church? He said, no, every Thursday morning I sit at this coffee shop up the road here before I go to work. And and, uh, Pastor Goodenough uh, was sitting at another table. And I'd seen him there a couple of times, sitting there. And then the one day he came up to me and he said, hi, I'm good enough, and I pastor the church down the road, and I've noticed you also around here. Let me introduce myself and chat it to him. And they started talking, and good enough said, come to church on Sunday, and he came. So I said to him, why did you come, you know, why did you come hear him? He said to me, never in my life have I sat with anyone who seemed so genuinely interested in me. Now tell me the gospel can't do something for South Africa. Eh? But it takes that humility of being other person-centered and looking at the other person and really being genuinely concerned for them. And that's what the gospel does in our hearts. It makes us concerned for others. We don't even notice it often because we just do it. We think this is normal. But that's what the Spirit does in our hearts. Now, that can also be a problem because you think, oh, I've got to just wait for everyone else to go first, you know. And you can feel like this is not fair. <laughs> I remember um, another car story. Uh, I was being trained to drive a car. like for, well, I was trained to be a paramedic. And the, the driving instructor had, was visiting South Africa. He had come over to do the training, and he was from England. He was from, from London. And he was giving us the driving instruction. And so he said to us, okay, now, you're important. You've got to drive defensively. And what you've got to do when you're driving is when you're on the highway, you must keep two and a half seconds of distance between you and the car in front of you. So sitting there, I looked at him and I said, you, you're not from South Africa, are you? <laughs> and he said, no, mate, I'm from London, you know. And I said, you see, here's what you need to understand in South Africa. If I keep two and a half seconds of distance between me and the car in front of me on the highway. Seven taxis will jump in that gap and I'm going to end up back in the garage. I'm just going to keep making space for everybody else to get in front. Now that's the kind of anxiety that comes to people when they hear Peter say, humble yourselves and put other people first. You think I'm going to be the last. Everyone's going to walk all over me. No one's going to notice me. No one's going to take care of me. Which is why it is one sentence in, this, uh, in the Greek. Humble yourselves, so at the bottom of may exalt you. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, if you're seeing it in your ESV translation. It is one sentence. How, we, we sing, cast your burdens onto Jesus for he cares for you, but we don't often see the context. What is the context? The context is God has just told you put other people first. <gasps> what? I'm going to be the last. Everyone's going to walk all over me. I'm going to be holding the door open. The whole world is going to step in front of me and I'm going to be forgotten. No, cast all your anxieties on Jesus because he cares for you. He notices you. He sees you. And he will lift you up at the proper time. My new fellow pastors, do not be anxious about what lies ahead. Uh, you are a servant of all, but the chief shepherd will care for you. Amen.